Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is BuildPhase. Okay, let's talk about this cable box tech support. <laughs> so we got fiber in our home a few months ago and I finally got things set up so we have TV coming over the fiber instead of the old DSL, which we had before. And the new cable box connects to the TV with HDMI and it has a remote control that has two buttons at the top next to the power button. One says TV and one says Viasat. Viasat is the the cable TV provider here. And when you press one of those buttons, it switches the remote to control one device or the other. So without having to, I didn't have to set anything up. Somehow through the magic of HDMI, I don't know, this remote can sort of sense what the TV is or I don't, maybe all the commands are piped through the cable box and over the HDMI to the TV. So with this one remote, you can turn the TV on and off and change the volume and channels on the TV, not just on the cable box. So you can bring up the TV's menu as well as the cable box's menu and all these kind of things. And it just gets very confusing. And so the the TV was turned on and the box was turned off and people downstairs were trying to turn the box on and not figuring out why hitting the power on the on the cable remote was just turning the TV off and on. So not really obvious. I mean, it's when you look at it, you can kind of see what they're doing because actually each of the TV and Viasat buttons is also a little LED backlit thing. And whenever you press any button, it flashes either the TV or Viasat. So you can sort of see which device your command is going to. But if you don't, if you're not aware that that is even a, an option to happen, there's nothing that anyone's going to think of. So state toggling. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a stateful remote. Do you like your cable company in Sweden? Are they helpful? This one we just switched to. I'm kind of on the fence about it. I think the the biggest problem is like with any cable company is they just have their their packages of sets of channels that you get whether you like it or not. Like we would be happy to have certain categories of things and have other categories of things just not be gone. Like we don't need all 40 or 50 sports channels that this cable writer gives us because none of us watch any sports on TV almost ever. And so like we'd be happily just do without those, but they're part of the package that we want to get the other channels too. So one thing I found is that this cable box does have a way that you can, when you bring up the TV guide, you can sort of set channels to be favorites and have it show only your favorites. But that seems like a lot of work going through a couple hundred channels and marking them all as... Do you get US channels? Not much. There are some things like like some of the basic cable stuff like VH1 and MTV and Discovery and those things are all more or less available in some format, but they're all kind of European varieties of those. So a lot of the programming is similar or the same, but some of it's going to be different. And then, then things like ABC and, H and NBC and CBS, none of those are available. There are things like uh, sometimes CNBC and CNN. But sometimes we had like some BBC news and Sky News and stuff like that. We have Al Jazeera right now, but I haven't watched any of it yet. So I don't know. I feel like more and more the things I want to watch are things that I'm actually avail I can are available either for free through certain apps. Like when it comes to news, both NBC and ABC have Apple TV apps that are pretty decent. I think the ABC one I'm using to watch the uh, 
Democratic convention the past few days. They just have a live stream set up and you just watch. And uh, NBC has more like sort of highlights of recent stuff. And then, or, or it's things like when it comes to actual shows I'm interested in, a lot of those are things that are on Netflix, that kind of thing. And then also here in Sweden, we have HBO Nordic, which is HBO original programming and whatever other series that they choose to bring in that are not, otherwise not available in this market. So for instance, on HBO Nordic, they have Parks and Recreation, which is an NBC show, but since NBC does not really distribute anything to the Nordic region, it's up for grabs. So HBO Nordic buys the rights to that and distributes it here. Hmm. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But but again, that's more that's leaning more and more towards just using stuff that is available on the internet through the web or through apps and things that are on cable TV. I find personally less and less interesting or relevant. So we haven't cut the cord yet, but it's probably going to happen within a couple of years. That's fair. How do you get your Olympics coverage there? Who airs that? This year, I'm not sure. I haven't looked into it. It varies. It's like in the U.S., different companies buy the rights to different years. Since we have 40 or 50 sports channels, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I'm sure we've got it covered, but I haven't looked into it. Nice. So, yeah, it, it, It's one of those things that it varies. I think that Sweden being a smaller market, it's not... It's not as big of a news story as it is in the U.S. Like when one network loses the Olympics and no someone else picks it up, that's like sort of a that's almost a piece of news, right? Because it's a big deal. It's a big, huge amount of money they spend. Whereas here, it's like, you know, the population of Sweden is less than, say, the population of any of the top twenty U.S. cities, more or less. So it's not really that many people. Got it. So that makes sense. I'm sure some people follow the, follow that with intense interest, but I don't really like. I know there will be sports on my TV. I can never get rid of it. You can't it. avoid it here. I can never get rid of it. Try as I might. Yeah. Everyone in America will watch at least one event, whether whether they want to or not. NBC will make sure of that. One thing that I've definitely seen is that uh, the coverage here is free of a lot of the kind of glurge that fills a lot of the U.S. Olympics coverage, where they have all these kind of athlete profiles with dramatic background music and stuff about their childhood and their their parents and the town they grew up. Like all that kind of stuff is not really a part of the show here, which I'm happy for. Yeah, don't need any of that. Anyway, what's up with you? That's enough of my cable TV tech news. I wanted to talk about app extensions today. Do you have any experience writing any extensions for iOS? I have done just a little bit of that. We had a thing within ThoughtBot. We had an internal tool that we were building. Like we were building on on the Mac a Today extension for that. So I've done a little bit with that, but not enough to like claim any expertise, really. Hmm. And I think that's, isn't it the case that now in iOS 10, a whole lot of the new things that are coming out are in the form of app extensions. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So I'm adding our first extension to our app and I need access to core data. And I'm I'm trying to work out if it's if it's actually a good idea to somehow migrate our persistent store into the shared app group container mm-hmm. or if I should just be writing something in the app that kind of l- listens for core data changes and then gets just the smallest amount of data that I need and then puts it into a user defaults instance, like the shared user defaults using a suite. I was mm-hmm. hoping for some guidance on 
communicating data between uh, the extension and the application. How are you thinking it would listen for changes? Like, so you want to listen for changes to core data and get the minimum you need. Like what, in the sense of your app talking to the extension somehow, or, or rather, I mean, we already have you know some methods in the app that are happening on launch, and when you come into the foreground and when you log in, that that go out and download your friends, and they download like your recents, so that we can populate other parts in the UI with this on demand, or not necessarily on demand, but like we'll have that data in most cases when needed. What I wanted to do is when we get that possibly just distill it down and put it in user defaults so that I can access it. Cause it seems like the better approach than trying to move our entire persistent store file just so that I can make fetches. I don't know. I'm on the fence. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I would say it boils down to how, how difficult is it to migrate a database into like a shared group space that I do not know. Cause I guess you have an existing database that is not in a shared space. Right. And you want to be able to move move that over, and I, yeah, I mean, this sounds like shouldn't be a lot of work, right? But at the same time, it's core data, so all bets are off. Like if you haven't done it, you don't know what the complexity is going to be until you try it, right? And the persistent store coordinator does have a method for migrating the store that's attached to it to a new URL, mm-hmm. and it will make sure that all of the like the write ahead logging file and sort of the you know associated files with the SQLite database come along with it. Okay. The only thing that I'm unsure of is it's a synchronous method. And if there's a very, very large store and I'm on a very, very old device, like how long is this actually going to take? Like, do I need to show some sort of like migrating UI like the first time this happens? I'm also concerned about writing it into a new place when potentially an extension might be trying to get at it, which is fine if you use the file coordination APIs, but those apparently don't guarantee correctness across processes until 8.2. So I would also have to bump our deployment target to 8.2 to make sure that all of that is happening correctly. What is your current deployment target? 8.0. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that shouldn't be a problem, should it? I think, I think I've always sort of taken for granted that anybody who can run x.0 can run x.2. Hmm. I guess that's been always in my base assumption is that that upgrading to the latest version of the major version or the latest release of the major ver- of a major version in your deployment dark, deployment minimum shouldn't be an issue. But it's different it's different if you're bumping from 7 to 8 or from 8 to 9 cuz you're going to be locking out some devices, but on the other hand, you could have people who are you know, say they're running 8.0 and they actively don't want to upgrade to iOS 9 for some reason. This is more of an issue people say people making the jump from say iOS 6 to 7, that kind of thing, where like they know there's a performance issue so they just don't want to upgrade, but eventually at some point, you know, if you're on iOS 6.0, <laughs> the only upgrade available to you today is iOS 9. Like you can't say if you're a normal user, you can't say, "Hey Apple, give me the latest version of iOS 6 or iOS 8." Mm-hmm. So that's that's the one caveat. But I don't really know how much that should be a limiting factor. I think in this case, I don't think there's a big performance impact, a negative one, of going from iOS 8 to 9. So there probably aren't a lot of people hanging on to iOS 8.0 or 8.1 for that reason, mm-hmm. I would guess. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. But as always, you, just, you will also have some number of people who have iOS 8.0 that came on their iPhone 5S or whatever, and never upgrade until 
something in the world makes them upgrade. Yep. Yep. So I was actually pretty surprised last week to learn that one of my daughters has been running iOS 7 up until now, <laughs> which kind of blew my mind. And she's like, well, but I don't, it's like she always had, she always had problems of like her phone being too full. It's a smallish iPhone 4S, I think with only 16 gigs or something. And it's like, it's always full of photos. So she could never upgrade it. Mm-hmm. So I finally got upgraded and now she's complaining that everything is slow. <laughs> yep. That sounds about right. <laughs> So it all seems very complex. And I'm sure that a lot of people have had to make this transition. Probably if, you know, if they're on top of their, their stuff, they probably did it around the time of iOS 8.0 and moving their Mm. core data store. I'm just not sure that it's like worth all the effort because I don't need to do these really complex queries or anything. I typically don't need a lot of the relationships. I just need really just a few entities, maybe one, just one entity really. So yeah, I'm kind of leaning towards... I don't know, observing the context, listening for updates, and then just pushing things into user defaults, not the managed objects, just really, really simplified data structures that have exactly what I need. It's almost more like making an API between your app and its extension or a protocol saying here, you know, the, here's how we exchange information is not through actually touching the same data, but I put stuff in here and you can read stuff out of the same spots that actually frees up your extension to, to if you want, not care about core data at all. Your extension to work in an entirely, entirely di- different method, you know, if mm-hmm. all your storing is essentially value types yeah, in exactly. a dictionary, then you're free to do whatever you want. I think both of those have, have a certain appeal. I think what you're leaning towards sounds like it makes sense because typically in a, an extension, we always have this idea that a mobile app should be pretty limited in scope, right? You don't want to have a single app doing a thousand different things. And I think that applies even more so to an extension. You know, an extension is almost by definition going to be dealing with a subset of what your main app is dealing with probably. Mm-hmm. So, And the, the nature of this extension is such that it doesn't have to write anything back. Hmm. It's read-only, and it's also not a long-lived extension process just because of what it is. Mm-hmm. You're typically not going to be bouncing back and forth between app and extension. Right. It's, you're in the extension. If we have the data available, we'll use it. Otherwise, we're just going to send you right back into the app to continue whatever you were trying to do. Sure. I think that there's probably other extensions that need a more robust setup, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, as we talk, I'm I'm leaning more towards just shoving a dictionary into user defaults. Yeah, I think that that makes that makes sense. Trying to m- minimize the footprint of what of how these two things are actually interacting, especially like you said, when when the extension is really read only, then it's sort of it's it's just kind of a view. You're just sort of passing some data to a view. Yeah, I like the idea of the protocol. I think I should be designing the core components of the extension to be working in terms of that protocol so that at some point I could just switch that out with a, an actual you know, core data adapter instead of something that just goes to user defaults. Hmm. I like that idea. That's a good idea. Hmm. Right, yeah. So you could have the, the code that's actually dealing with passing information around doesn't need, even need to know at a certain high level where the data is being pushed to or where it's coming from in the extension side. Yeah, exactly. You have a layer that just like says, here's some data. Yep. And then you can display it or whatever. Hey all, producer Tom here to tell you about today's sponsor, Hired.com. Searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, and even time-consuming. 
Pushy recruiters try to sell you roles that you don't actually want, and job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. Sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. The solution? Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent, talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. Over a four-week time frame, you receive personalized interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to over 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand name companies like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. The best part? It's always free for you to find your next job on Hired. No exceptions. They pay you to get hired. Today's listeners can earn double their normal $1,000 hiring bonus by signing up today at Hired.com slash BuildPhase. That's right. Earn $2,000 for finding your next chapter on Hired.com slash BuildPhase. So I've been working in Xcode 8, which mm-hmm. is... She's actually been really nice. This, okay. This, this is the first time I've worked in an Xcode beta and things are really just working nicely. I accidentally turned on the new automatic code signing this morning, mm-hmm. proceeded to freak out and then noticed that things were just running really smoothly. And I was like, oh, okay, this isn't, uh, this isn't so bad. This isn't totally broken. I'm well, unpleasantly nice. surprised. Yeah. Cool. I may have to give it more of a spin. I've I've barely touched it. I've been on vacation for the past few weeks and have not really been doing things. I did get as far as downloading the latest beta a few days ago and launching it to install all its required components, and that's all I've done. Hmm. So, yeah. How have you found it working without uh, any of the? Because I guess things like the old plugins do not work, right? I was literally just about to ask you, do, do you use XFIM? Are you yeah. a VIM user? I use XFIM all the time. Got it. So I actually managed to get it to work in Xcode 8 without disabling system integrity protection. And I did so by replacing Xcode 8's code signature with my own developer ID signature. Mm-hmm. I also code signed the XFIM plugin with the same one, and it works in Xcode 8. It's completely broken in Xcode 7, but that's fine. I can live with that for now. Did you discover this by chance, just sort of messing around with it, that this would work, or did you find some tip about this somewhere? There's an ongoing issue on the XFIM repo where someone mentions near the bottom that they just replaced Apple's signature with their own, mm-hmm. and then it just started working. Okay. Because at first they were they were trying to remove the code signature, but then Xcode won't launch if you have SIP enabled and I really don't want to go down that road. Also, on my laptop, I don't have the permissions to disable that anyway mm-hmm. I'm on my work machine. So I had to find a, a workaround. Right. And for now, the developer ID thing seems to work. And I guess that, could, that gets blown away whenever Xcode upgrades, right, to a new version. Yep. You have to redo yep. those steps. Yeah, but it, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Also, duped a radar asking them to allow the old style extensions as long as they're signed by developer ID. Hmm. So hopefully that happens. Cool. So is that really the uh, 
the only reason they, that they have stopped working entirely for most people is the is the SIP. Yeah, it it seems to be that it's just completely stopped loading those bundles because okay. typically they're not signed. Right. But once I had both components signed with the same, you know, dev ID, it seemed to take it. Okay. So, cool. Yeah. That's very good to know. Because that's been sort of one of the things that I've been dreading about starting to work in Xcode 8 because I'm so used to using Vim that just like as soon as I I start typing everything goes wrong. Yep. And it's one of those things it's it's so weird because I used to have I used to not use Xvim. I used Vim a lot in terminal and MacVim sometimes, but I was just using normal Cocoa text editing in Xcode all the time up until a couple of years ago. I remember I used to have this sort of mental switch between what I was doing in in terminal or MacVim what I was doing doing Xcode. I would just switch back and forth and it was fine. And then I had to do this sort of these mental gymnastics to train myself to do the same thing in Xcode that I was doing elsewhere anyways. And now I'm so stuck in that mode that it's very hard for me to do without it. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to hear that there is a a way to do it. Yeah, I I knew we had this work coming up and I was really dreading having to use my mouse to work in it because Mm. I wasn't going to get anything done. Everything would take three times as long the mouse yeah i think i'm not as much of a mouse avoider as some people as many people in this company are like i'm okay with it (laughs) and i know that i know that like uh gordon has talked about like like he never even uses the uh, project overview in xcode right like command one he just never has that open because he just opens files using the various ways you know command shift o and type a file name or you know, if it's doing everything in Vim, then it's whatever way you choose doing that inside of Vim itself. But I guess I, I kind of like having a view of a structure of files. Like I don't always necessarily, especially if it's a project that I'm that I'm relatively new to or haven't looked at in a while, I don't necessarily have the name of every class in my head that I can think of. All oh, right, I want to jump to this thing. Sometimes I do, and then I can just Command Shift O and start typing it. But sometimes I need to look around and say, okay, what was that thing called? I like being in keyboard-only mode when I can, but I don't feel like it's causing me too much distraction or difficulty to switch to doing stuff with the mouse when I need to do it. I found that as projects get larger and larger, the Navigator, to me, is less helpful. And maybe that's because I'm typically on projects where we're not really good about keeping things organized over there. Hmm. So I just have no idea where those would end up. But the new autocomplete is so good that... I can usually find what I want with open quickly now. Yeah. Because you no longer have to know what it starts with. Right. Just enough to have it somewhere in the name. Yeah. That's, that seems yeah. to be a big improvement. Yeah. As long as your naming conventions are good and you have a good shared understanding of like what to call certain objects and those objects don't just do one thing or then like, it's not so bad. Right. So. I guess I think, um, like you said, it depends on the project and how well or to what extent things are organized. I try to usually on projects I'm working on. I actually I kind of like to group things by area of functionality within the app as opposed to having here's the models, here's the views, here's the view controllers, here's the view models. Cuz very often what you're dealing with at one time is a slice of functionality. Like okay, I'm dealing with this view controller with which has 
this view and this contained view and these two models and these two view models. Like I kind of like putting all of those things into one group and then I can just sort of contract that or when I don't want to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that because you start to notice when a sort of module of like view controllers and view models and models are starting to reference other types. Mm -hmm. And if those don't have a clear place to go, then it's kind of a smell that like, you know, all of these different modules are using this one thing, which you might find surprising when I have all the models together, it feels less odd to just have them all sort of communicating with one another. And that usually leads to fragility I found. Yeah. So yeah, in larger projects, I'm definitely erring towards keeping entire modules of the app separate. Yep. Yeah. I think, yeah. That, I think that, make, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Both like you said, it, it helps you notice when you're crossing boundaries more than you expect to be. And also then when you, even when you're, when you're not crossing boundaries, you end up sort of hopping around among those same files in that same little group without having to jump around your whole project too much. That actually helps make the project view a bit more useful also, because when it is a thing that you have four or five different groups that each have 20, 30, 40 things in them, and you're jumping around between four things in those four or five groups. Like all you're doing is scrolling that big view up and down, and it's not really it's not really helping you in any way. It's just getting it's just kind of in your way. Whereas when you have them grouped by module, as you say, it sort of it gives you sort of a. I think it kind of works along with that sort of spatial part of your brain, right? It helps you think of that these things belong together, and I can see that they are together. Yep. Yeah, it's like it's like a city where each neighborhood has its own bakery and laundromat instead of having like the bakery district and the <laughs> laundromat district. And you just go to this one part of town and have to pick one. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. Although I do I do love going to the bakery district. Mm. It smells so good. It smells, <laughs> it smells so good. good. It smells good everywhere. Oh. Like I said, I'm I'm totally out of the loop on almost everything just because I've been on vacation and I'm just not paying a lot of attention to what's going on. I mean, I... I try to sort of keep up somewhat looking at Twitter once a day or something to see if anything, if there are any big controversies being being discussed. I saw there was a bit of talk a few days ago about people starting to raise a flag saying that maybe Swift 3 ought to be delayed. Like that there were some things they felt like it was too much happening too quickly to get in before the fall. I think maybe Erica Sadoon started talking mm. about this. And I'm not really sure. Have you followed this at all? No, I I haven't heard this, but I don't find that surprising because I think a lot of people had been assuming that Swift 3 was going to be the end-all be-all release that addresses source compatibility in the future. Hmm. And there was an email sent out a couple of days ago from the release manager listing a bunch of proposals that had been accepted and that were maybe in process of being implemented, mm -hmm. but looked like it, they would actually not get into Swift 3 which I think a lot of people found really disappointing because some of these things had been proposed months back. And then by the time they got accepted and they found someone to work on it and now they're not getting into the release. Hmm. And yeah, I, I think people are sort of skeptical about these things, making it into point releases because then it's like, instead of every year having to update the source, now it's every couple of months when there's a new Xcode release. So I, I kind of understand that. There was talk about the Swift 4 compiler being able to compile Swift 4 and Swift 3 code. So if you had libraries that had a mix of the two, everything would sort of just work. But I'm not sure where that discussion is going. That sounds almost crazy. 
Like, yeah. That sounds like requires a lot of work to make that function and of kind of dubious utility. Like, because at some point, your Swift 3 code, you're going to want to move that to Swift 4 anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they said right from the beginning there was the issue of source compatibility versus binary compatibility. And they kind of said, you know, from the beginning, they sort of punted and said, we're going to deal with this a little bit later on. And we're sort of still there two years later. Still like, well, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to get there. We're getting there. But I don't know. I guess, I mean, so what is the real impact of this not being in place yet is it means that you have the issue with various libraries written for various versions of Swift and you have the issue where whatever SDK you're compiling with has to include some of the Swift stuff bundled into your app instead of just using what's in the system, right? Those are the, I think these are probably the main real-world repercussions of this. Yeah, but your last point there kind of makes me wonder why we have this release schedule as is. I, I understand that for most app developers, Apple wants them to have Swift bundled with a version of Xcode. Beyond that, I can't see why there's any reason that Swift 3 needs to come out this fall. Hmm. It's not like the standard library is shipping with iOS and is on every user's iPhone, then we can link against it. Because there's no ABI compatibility, we're still including you know, all the standard libraries inside of our application, making our binaries bigger. So Really, I don't get it. Yeah, well, I'm, is Apple still saying that Swift 3 is definitely going to be part of the, the release this fall? Because it's, right now, Xcode 8 works with both Swift 3 and Swift 2.3, right? So it's sort of, it requires more work on their part at this point to disable Xcode 2.3 or Swift's 2.3 support in Xcode 8 than to keep it there. If it's already working and it lets you switch between right now, what is there to gain by actually taking it away? I think they just they want developers to start moving towards it mm. because the biggest change is that you get a more value type foundation along with it. As they've they've taken a lot of the classes in foundation, stripped the NS prefix, and right. a lot of them are value types. So NS date, value type. And that's a bigger change than just some of the Swift two point three semantic changes. Right. When you have to go into your code and actually start reasoning about like, well, this used to be a reference type, this used to be mutable, and now it's not. I can't believe that Apple really expects everyone to get on the Swift 3 train in time for like, you know, releasing this September against iOS 10. Right. I would argue that most developers are not going to do that. We're not doing that. We're right. going to Swift 2.3 and doing the bare minimum so that we can get something out. But right. yeah, I don't think they've explicitly said that it's needs to be released along with iOS 10, but that's definitely their goal. And that's all their deadlines seem to be working towards that goal. It does feel really weird that they're leaving a bunch of stuff behind. Yeah. Kind of disappointing. I guess, though, that, uh, you know, maybe they're realizing that the goal of ABI compatibility is still too far away. In, so that in, the, in that sense, it doesn't really make a difference. It's like, well, we're going to have to wait till Swift 4 for ABI compatibility anyway. So what's the difference if we put it in here, you know, put it in now or put it in later? It's just time. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I, I, and I've actually not dealt with almost anything in Swift 3 yet at all like i've watched i've watched the videos about it the new value types and things and it all looks pretty cool but i have not dealt with it the bummer is that there's some interesting new xcode features in xcode 8 that only work with swift 3 like the new thread sanitizer and the memory graph view those mm -hmm. things only really work with swift 3 oh okay 
which is unfortunate. Hmm. Well, how uh, how big of a deal is it to just move an existing Swift 2.3 code base to Swift 3? Have you tried it? Like tried running one of your apps through the converter and or through the upgrade or whatever it's called and see what happens? I have not. I don't expect it to be a fun process. Because <laughs> in the past, when I've done it with for earlier versions of Swift, it has typically not been a big problem. The only place I've seen big problems, I'm, I was helping a friend who was working on an app that he had taken over from somebody else, and they'd written it in Swift 1.1 or 1.2, and so it had to be upgraded. And doing so you know, it sort of uncovered a lot of things where the original programmers had just been quite sloppy. You know, they they had taken some very bad shortcuts about unwrapping optionals primarily, and it just sort of exposed all these these problems. And so I sort of I I showed it to him, like I I, I walked him through a few of them. It was basically it was kind of like two or three specific bad patterns the developers had done. But each of those spread out, you know, maybe happened in five, 10, 20, 30 places. So once, once I taught my friend these, you know, these couple patterns that the originals had sort of done wrong and how to fix them, then it was fine. He could sort of, you know, click in each one in Xcode and step through and fix it. So it was, and it was, it was some amount of manual work and it, but it, and for my friend who didn't have a lot of Swift background and, you know, he had done some iOS before in Objective-C and this is kind of his first look at Swift really. Like he didn't really, there's no way for him as kind of a novice in Swift to know what am I looking at in this conversion process? What's, what's going wrong here? So it took, it took some, some figuring out, but once he was up and running, it was fine. And I think for someone who's more experienced, that kind of thing is probably not a problem because hopefully you're not making a lot of bad mistakes all the time anyway, that the switch is requiring you to fix. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, the first couple Swift updates were mostly additive, or mm. syntax changes, or you know, addressing you know implicitly unwrapped optionals mm. and sort of spreading that out through the library. But this time around, 3.0 is affecting, well, one, how Objective-C APIs are getting imported into Swift and their new names. Mm. And more importantly, it's taking our foundation types, no pun intended, and actually changing their memory semantics. Right. And so this is one of those things where I feel like I can't look at it in the converter and make all the changes I need to ensure the like, correctness of the program. Right. I kind of have to let the converter go, write down all the places where I think we could have a problem, hmm. and then go back and test them and fix them. Right. So that's the part that worries me, and that's the part that's holding me back from just making a Swift 3 branch and doing it. I think it's the kind of thing that if you have enough of the right kind of test coverage, you'd probably be less worried about it. But it's the kind of thing where within the iOS community, we tend to have a problem of not having enough automated tests, right? So like, like a lot of the things you're describing are exactly what, if all the logic that involved these types that are now value types instead of reference types, if all of that code was fully tested, then you wouldn't be worried because you'd know, okay, I can do the converter, I'll run the tests. And if the tests don't work, then I know, okay, yeah, in this case, that semantic change makes a difference and I have to fix something. But as, as is often the case yep. for us, we, you don't necessarily know, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we've, we've been trying to write our Swift components with a little more rigor than some of the legacy Objective-C code in the code base. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, places where 
we do have some sort of, you know, mutable Objective-C foundation UI kit type internally. There's not multiple owners of that thing. We're not letting it leak out mm-hmm. of our interface. So we can, for the most part, be certain that everything is okay. Right. But of course, it's programming. So I'm never just going to make the conversion and merge it and go, ship, this should be fine. Ship it. Yep. <laughs> Convert okay. It builds. We're done. Yep. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. Do you have a link to, I think you said that Erica Sadin, Sadun was blogging about this. I'd like to read more about it. Yeah. I searched so in her Swift category in her blog. There are some posts from the past, the past couple of weeks that may be relevant to this. When one of them, it is a thing where she is including and quoting the email you mentioned from Ted Kremenek mm-hmm. about what is accepted, but not implemented this big list of big list of changes. Yeah, the, yeah. The deadline was yesterday, and anything that is in progress can get in before tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But after tomorrow, that's it. Right. If it's not in, it's gonna, not going to make it. Mm. Okay. Exciting, I guess. Although it is exciting. I think I'll, you know, for me, always these. I feel like these kind of version numbers are often arbitrary, and deadlines are almost always arbitrary, right? Like. <laughs> It's like we were talking about it. It wouldn't kill them. It wouldn't really affect the release of iOS 10 or macOS 11 or whatever we're calling these things now if Swift 3 is not available on October 15th or whatever. It's kind of, kind of yeah. so wet. But I think it's it's always it's it's good to have sort of things to focus on and 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 goals. But I guess I'm I'm kind of of the mindset that like I, I like the idea of being able to just sort of say, okay, here's what we've got right now. Here's the state of what we have right now. Let's give this a version number. And if this breaks something from the previous release, then we increase the major, you know, just semantic versioning and don't worry too much about a big number. And I've talked about this plenty with with Gordon for sure. And I've, I've talked to you about it, you know, especially with regards to things like CocoaPods, the old <laughs> standard thing. And the same thing applied if, to... Uh, well, it's been, you know, it's applied to many different things. But just, I feel like people people get hung up on that big number, the first number, being super important. And it can be, and it yep. can it can not be also. Yeah, I totally agree. If, you know, if we lived in a world where the Swift standard library had to be done to be able to make it into an iOS release, mm. sure, makes perfect sense. But that is not the world we live in. Right. So, yeah, the only sort of... The only demands and deadlines are kind of, again, this 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 sort of arbitrary and just like, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. I'm always glad though when it when it gets done and when sort of a new level of functionality in the language is defined and carved out and they say, okay, this is this. Here is what you have in this. If there was just like a weekly version of Swift, it would be pretty chaotic. So we would have gone through a hundred versions by now. Yeah. So yeah, I think two or three a year is perfectly acceptable. All right. Well, I think I'm out of material. Yep. Yeah. I don't really think I need to go back either. Good talking yep. to you. Thanks for joining me. Yep. It was good. Show notes will be available at buildphase.fm slash one Oh two. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. And Stitcher. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs>